Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Today on the show, I welcome Dr. William Lee. Dr. Lee is a Harvard-educated physician of internal medicine who has dedicated himself to bridging the gaps between medical treatment and nutrition for over 20 years. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Eat to Beat Disease, the new science of how your body can heal itself. And his TED Talk, Can We Eat to Starve Cancer?, has garnered more than 11 million views. Dr. Lee has been on the forefront of what I like to call the food is medicine movement, but that doesn't mean he has completely forsaken the beneficial attributes of Western allopathic medicine. Instead, Dr. Lee is dedicated to finding the balance between nutrition, medical science, and pharmacology to prevent and treat disease. Dr. Lee and I discuss how our understanding of the root causes of disease have evolved over history and the role of bacteria in that evolution. We dive into the gut, specifically the microbiome, and how fiber-fed microbes can upregulate the immune system. We explore a groundbreaking new cancer treatment called immunotherapy that enables our own immune system to beat back cancer. And Dr. Lee gives us a shopping list that includes the diverse foods we should stock in order to prevent disease. Now, the immune system is on the top of everyone's mind these days, and Dr. Lee's passion for this topic is infectious. And he's really just one of the most important voices in the reshaping of modern medicine. This conversation was as lively as it was informative, and I hope you find it helpful. So without further delay, I present to you, Dr. William Lee. Here we go. Dr. William Lee, good to be with you. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'd like to start by exploring our human understanding of disease and how it has evolved over the last couple of centuries and specifically the role that bacteria has played within that evolution. 
And I'll just set it up this way. So until relatively recently, the prominent diseases that have plagued humanity have been infectious. I'm, I guess, referring to the Black Plague or smallpox, cholera, infectious diseases that have literally decimated populations, killed hundreds of millions of people. However, in modern Western society, our primary nemeses, with the notable exception of COVID, which we can touch on, it's obviously the elephant in the room, but our, our modern primary nemeses are chronic diseases like cancer, heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, and autoimmune diseases like MS, rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's, um, uh, intestinal bowel disorder, et cetera. Um, so as a pathway into the conversation, maybe I'll place this in the Middle Ages for a moment when we had no concept of microbes and the prevailing theory was known as miasma theory that posited that disease was caused by pestilence in the air <laughs> emanating from rotten food. Um, but when and how did our understanding of, it, of disease and its relationships to microbes change? You know, Jeff, it, you know, let me unpack what you're setting up uh, just a little bit, which right. is um, until we had even a germ theory, there was no understanding of why we got sick. And even more importantly, why we didn't get sick more often, which is what I want to get to, because my, my career has really been mm. grounded on answering that question is why do we, why are, why are we healthy and what's the secret to staying healthy? Because when it comes to well-being, which is defined by a lot of different types of healthy, right? So it's a convergence, how we feel. If we feel well, it's because we feel well in a lot of different sectors of our lives. Um, what's responsible for that? But but back to this idea of, of trying to find why we get sick. That's been really the center of medical science discourse for thousands of years. I think it's human nature, and we see this in today's world with a pandemic to try to point fingers, right? And when I say point fingers, mm -hmm. I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about, we're trying to find what's the cause that, uh, who did it and why? And, and, you know, somebody is the guilty party or something is the guilty, um, uh, uh, agent. And that's really, I think where the discoveries of Pasteur and other people that actually were able to, um, reveal a microbial world that we previously didn't understand and found that some of the microbes that were discovered early on were indeed pathogenic, meaning that they cause disease, they cause pathology. And that basically triggered another several hundred years of active research to identify one after another bad guys, uh, bad actors, um, uh, you know, criminals that ruin the neighborhood. And I'll come back to why I'm saying that. Um, and really trying to portray as much as we can, what causes syphilis, what causes gonorrhea, what causes the plague, what animals transferred, what happens when we breathe it in? Why is it so bad? Can we find a, a tincture? Can we find an injection? Can we find a biotechnology? I've just went over 200 years um, that could actually knock out the bad guy, right? So we're always looking for that heat-seeking missile to destroy the lair of the terrorist that threatens us. Well, what I would say, and, and by the way, as a, as a medical doctor, as an MD trained in internal medicine, that's how I was taught too in the 1980s and 1990s. That was the dominant 
philosophy, which is that bacteria are bad. Wash your hands. We have to scrub and sterilize everything. And indeed, you know, uh, honestly, going back a couple of hundred years, women dialed in childbirth because the one infected mom who wound up actually uh, being having her baby delivered by a doctor who didn't wear gloves and didn't wash his hands wound up um, uh, infecting the doctor's hands who then went right to the next mom in the next bed to who didn't have the infection to deliver her baby and the doctors spread the bad germs, the bad actor to that next mom. And indeed about 30% of, of childbirths wound up in mortality dying of either mm. the baby or the mom, right? So again, there's lots of reason to think about bad guys. What's actually happened in the last, you know, I would say 10 years, 15 years, um, but is really coming to a white heat now, Jeff, is this recognition that bacteria are not all bad. In fact, there are some bad actors, but really bacteria um, are in fact, by and large, good guys. They're useful. They we, we coexist with them. Not sort of a passive coexistence, but in fact, bacteria work for us. And this led to the idea of a healthy microbiome, of which a lot of it's in our gut, about 39 trillion members of our gut microbiome. And this ecosystem that we've come to appreciate better, we're only we're just at the tip of the iceberg of understanding it is a neighborhood. It's a it's an ecosystem. It's like the Great Barrier Reef miniaturized and, and swallowed so that it, it lives in our gut. There are um, trillions of organisms that all collaborate, cooperate. Um, they're good neighbors. And yeah, every now and then there's a bad neighbor uh, that actually causes a problem. But as long as your neighborhood is largely made up by good citizens that support each other, help each other, you know, loan each other, uh, the, the, the silverware when needed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we're actually pretty healthy. And that's started to change our focus away from the bad guys to trying to understand the good guys. Yeah, that's so helpful. And I love the terms uh, that you leverage to, to frame the discussion, uh, very much in the terms of a community. And um, and I, I think the first time I ever read the word holobiont was I think in your book, but I've I've since uh, it's coming into the zeitgeist quite a bit, um, and th this notion that humans are not just composed of human cells, but we actually live within a mutual interdependence uh, within our, this community, and it's a, it's a obviously there's many metaphors that one can draw between the the micro and the macro as one begins to. Uh, put a lens on on societal dysbiosis, if you will. Um, but I want to um, just focus on our, our also this kind of battle. These these terms that we use are constantly kind of war uh, have bell, they're bellicose in nature, uh, um, where we're always fighting against the bad guys. We're waging a war against bacteria. And for, I would say, you know, most of the 20th century, if you go through, um, you know, some of these great discoveries that obviously had a tremendous beneficial impact, but turned into kind of the over uh, prescription pres of, of, of broad spectrum antibiotics, for example, or the overuse of uh, NSAIDs or PPIs or even chlorine in the water, but um, 
but you know, antibacterial soaps, processed foods, chemical fertilizers, and, and, and herbicides, and whatnot. And um, I, I'm wondering if you think that the the human the human genome project. Uh, maybe you could describe that a little bit and some of the revelations that came out of that that perhaps birthed this emerging field of the microbiome. Yeah, you, you know, um, so the Human Genome Project, which took place over just a little over a decade, was this um, uh, audacious project to dive into the genetics of our body that every one of our 40 trillion cells possesses a secret, a, a Rosetta Stone, um, that we didn't know even how to get at. We couldn't read the Rosetta Stone until Watson and Crick helped us unravel, so to speak, the, the letters of the alphabet composing our DNA. Um, but the Human Genome Project was just much more than reading uh, a, a, a dead language or a language with a scroll we couldn't understand. It was really about trying to put function into the words of our genetic code, not just being able to read the prose, but to be able to understand what it means and what it is telling us or not telling us as the case may be. And by sequencing the human genome, there's about 30,000 human genes. We know the function of many of them, but not all of them. And a lot of times people don't tell you this, but as somebody who studies molecular biology, and I'm very involved with genomic uh, research, there are huge um, sections of our genetic code that might be likened to areas of highway in which when you look to the right or the left out the window, there's nothing but fields that we don't, we don't think there's much there. there. There isn't a city, there isn't a house, but just empty fields, it looks like. But in fact, these um, kind of dead areas in our uh, genetic code, we're still starting to realize that they actually have important functions. So um, uh, identifying the human genome project was really just being able to um, read uh, not just the alphabet, but to be able to read the prose and put some, and just so we can actually begin to decipher what our genetic code actually means. And when we started to do this, we realized some, many of our genes that are, are units of DNA that make proteins that are the instructions to tell our cells and our organs what to do, all right? Um, that many of those, we, 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 um, uh, we had a final aha, like, ah, that's what that gene looks like. We discovered new genes as well um, that we didn't appreciate before. Uh, and we also discovered new functions of genes that we thought we knew. Um, so this is brand new, uh, published in the journal Science just last week. Uh, tumor suppressor genes, which don't sound like they're, they should be a good thing, but actually are, a tumor suppressor gene is a gene, a healthy gene in our body that does exactly what it's named for. It suppresses cancer. And it was thought for many years that these genes, when they're working properly, prevent cancer cells from dividing and growing and accumulating and causing a problem. And so mm -hmm. when you have a mutation in the gene for a tumor suppressor, BRCA1, BRCA2, P53, you know, these are some of the words that scientists understand. And of course, Angelina Jolie had made everybody recognize BRCA. Um, when those genes are actually mutated, well, suddenly you, you lose a protection, you lose a shield. 
It's like taking off a bulletproof vest, you know, and now you're wading out into the into the field of fire. And without that protection, um, uh, it might actually you might actually get hit. And so that's what we thought for a few decades, including my research back, background, that tumor suppressor genes are done. About 10 years ago, we discovered that tumor suppressor genes also do something besides prevent cancer cells from growing. Many of them actually cut off the blood supply, feeding cancers as well. Two job descriptions mm -hmm. with one gene. Okay. And last week it was discovered there was another function, which is amazing for tumor suppressors. That is a jaw-dropping discovery published in the journal Science. It shows that the tumor suppressor gene also is a governor, a switching mechanism that allows your immune system to spot cancers and also and to snuff them out. Therefore, when you have a mutation in your tumor suppressor gene, not only do you uh, allow cancer cells to grow out of control, problem, you also allow blood vessels to feed the cancer, another problem due to this mutation. But now, and this is, this is to me is like the big aha that's going to reverberate in the cancer research community. We now know that these mutations actually help the cancer disguise itself from your immune system to escape immune destruction. Now the cancers escaped our health defense system, our immune system, and escaped our blood vessel system to control its growth. And so here's an example of how the Human Genome Project allowed us to actually uncover words, let's call it vocabulary words, that we didn't quite understand. And as we dig deeper and deeper and deeper into it, we're beginning to even understand more um, uh, more meaning to the words, a new definition to the words as well. Now, how do these genetic discoveries lead to something more? Well, number one, we understand it's not just we're born with these genes and, and there is the fate that we have, we inherited from mom and dad. But in fact, our life experience what we eat, what we do for work, who we meet for, for a living, who, who, bacteria that we actually uh, accumulate as we roll in the dirt, we go diving into an ocean, or that we um, uh, drop an ice cream cone and decide not to throw it up, but take a bite of it, that all those uh, factors start to cause epigenetic changes. This is taking your gene and slightly altering what it actually does to generate something else. Sometimes it's better sometimes it's worse. So, you know, we are this big tangled ball of yarn from a knowledge perspective. And what's exciting for me as a, as a medical researcher is really being able to contribute um, a bit to unraveling this bar, ball of yarn and trying to figure out and help other people understand what it is that is not just interesting to scientists, there's so much interesting to scientists, but what can you actually do for yourself with your food? And that's what I wrote about Need to Beat Disease, is what's practical that you can use that can help you. You know, there's a saying, you know, the more light, the bigger that you build the, the bonfire, the greater the, the amount of darkness is revealed, right? And this is the inexorable march of science and discovery and innovation that's so fascinating is that the more we learn, the more that we realize that we don't know. And, and, um, and just to be on the cutting edge of that is so uh, exciting. And uh, it was so grateful for, for your work there. And um, so it, it's interesting when you talk about a, a tumor suppressor gene, for example, um, one of the things that I believe that we learned was that um, 
that the human cell is not always the center of human health. And I say that um, in regards to that other um, agents, microbes, for example, can uh, alter or trigger gene expression in a particular way. Um, now, I'm now, I'm not sure how these particular tumor suppressor um, cells are regulated, um, but certainly there are plenty of examples within um, essential bodily systems that are not regulated by the human genome, but are regulated by the m- microbial genome. So maybe you could take a moment to, I guess, take a step back and address the nature of the microbiota, um, what it is, and then what systems it seems to be able to govern within the human body. Right. Okay. So perfect, timely question, because the answer to the question I've been asked, which is what is health? um, And the Mm -hmm. answer I used to give, which is well, if I'm not sick, I'm healthy. So health is the absence of disease. We now know that that's not true. That's not the right answer. It's the answer that many people give. But the question, the answer to the question, what is health? Health is not just the absence of disease. It is the result of our body's hardwired health defense systems that are firing on all cylinders to protect our health and repel disease from the time we're born all the way into our very last breath. And throughout the journey of our life, these health defense systems, these are biological systems that are inside our body, and the microbiome is one of those health defense systems, they actually are hard at work all day long, 24-7. They respond to what we do to ourselves. I'll talk about that with the gut bacteria in a second. Um, and mm. when we treat our health defenses well, they, they function to protect our health. And when we hurt our health defenses, um, and meaning that we take in chemicals or we actually don't exercise or we don't get enough sleep, we disadvantage our health defenses. Well, not surprisingly, we actually get more likely to get sick. And so what I think is really quite remarkable is this um, new era of discovery that our health is defended by biological systems in the body. When you talk about food and health, it's not just about the food. It's about how our body responds to what we put inside it. And right. our body being human and our body being bacteria, now here's where it actually gets to the microbiome. So um, first of all, we are filled with and covered by bacteria, which is really good. So you know, if you're getting ready, primping up, getting dressed, you know, combing your hair, uh, uh, getting ready for a night out for a weekend, uh, no matter how good you look in, in the mirror, you're covered with bacteria. Okay, that's just because... That's now we realize we, our skin, our ears, our nose, uh, openings of our mouth, even on our tongue, filled with bacteria, healthy bacteria. We want those bacteria around and inside our body. By the way, we got bacteria as well. Where did we, where did most of us get our first bacteria? When we crawled up our mom's body or the obstetrician put us, laid us on our mom's naked chest and we, and we went for the nipple to, to start, get our first meal, breast milk. Okay, that's actually where the bacteria from the skin and also some bacteria in the milk get into the baby's gut. For those babies who are not breastfed, they still got bacteria from their mom and their environment just from touching her skin. So we are intimately connected to our parents and our mothers based on the bacteria that then populates us. So this is not something that we pick up late in life. This is something that we 
actually in the, even in the womb, the bacteria are starting to form and then they start to grow and groom and, and, and build themselves out over the course of our life. Now, um, how many do we have in our gut inside us? About 39 trillion. Now that's not an exact number. That's let's call it rounding up. Um, yeah. uh, but there's about 40 trillion human cells. So you're talking about one-to-one. The whole term of holobiont is describes an organism that's composed of more than one species. So an entity, like, remember, like, uh, back a few decades, they were talking about cyborg, part human, part machine. Well, we're not cyborgs. Well, I mean, maybe some people are, but, you know, if they've got enough hard, hardware put in them. But we're holobionts. And holobionts is, yeah, well, holobiont is kind of like the, biological um, uh, counterpart to a cyborg instead of part human and part other species, in this case, bacteria, a lot of it grows in our gut. And if you think about the gut like a garden hose, okay, it's like 40 feet long, the tail end of it's like our colon, that's where a ton of bacteria is. And the bacteria fills up our gut and they live along the walls of our gut. Um, here's something amazing. the bec- When we feed uh, ourselves. So we're eating, we're sitting down eating dinner, eating something that's hopefully good for us, you know, mostly plant-based foods, uh, different kinds of proteins, ideally healthy proteins and staying away from the harmful stuff. We, our body, our stomach, our small intestines digests and absorbs a lot of the nutrients that our human cells need. Now, when I was in medical school, we were taught anything that's not absorbed by the human just rolls down to the end of the gut and you poop it out right? I mean, that is stool, feces. You see that when you're hiking on a trail and you say, you know, that was a moose must have been here. Okay. Well, that's not really true anymore. We realize that whatever the human body doesn't absorb does roll downward, but then what we're not, whatever we don't eat first, we're feeding our gut bacteria. What do they eat? They eat the bioactives found in plants. They eat the fiber, which is the prebiotics. They sometimes collaborate with the bacteria in our food as well. And that actually alters and, and fortifies and stimulates and activates our gut microbiome. And they thank us for it. Our bacteria are so grateful for the good things that we give them that as a token of thanks, they pay the bill for feeding them by creating metabolites so they generate their own chemical signals. And these chemical signals dissolve out of our gut. They get into our bloodstream. And, and man, do they do things. And this is the exciting part. They make our insulin work better. So it streamlines our metabolism. Right. They lower our blood lipids. So our cholesterol doesn't have to be so high. They help heal our wounds so that if we cut ourselves, we speed our healing more quickly. They help us maintain our adipose tissue, our fatty tissue. They prevent uh, big bulky boluses of fat from accumulating inside our inside the middle of our body cavity or into our gut. And they help to streamline what we're doing. They help our blood flow. And amazingly, some of these bacteria seem to be able to send a text message through our nervous system from our gut to our brain and tells our brain to release neurotransmitters and hormones, social hormones. So you know, dopamine, serotonin. These are the things that, you know, like if you were seeing a psychiatrist and you needed a medication, you would you'd get a prescription for this, okay? Our gut microbiome writes that prescription every time we eat. It's amazing. Um, yeah. Amazing. Another amazing hormone that the gut microbiome tells the brain to release is oxytocin. Oxytocin 
is the feel-good social hormone. So, you know, if you've been isolated from your friends for a year and a half during the pandemic and you finally get to see your friend, you know, and, and, and like you give them a big hug, all right, or, or a relative, you know, you're a, a grandparent um, uh, or, or a, a nephew or a niece, um, you give them a big hug. That feel good that you have when you have human contact, that's oxytocin pouring out of your brain. Oxytocin is also when you have a kiss, that romantic kiss, brain flooding is, is oxytocin flooding out. When you have an orgasm, your brain releases massive amounts of oxytocin for a few seconds, okay? Your gut bacteria helps make that happen. Amazing. That's incredible. Uh, yeah, I, I think I've read that 80% of the serotonin is upregulated by the gut or produced by the by uh, by bacteria in the gut. And I think this is a, actually a good time to delineate between prebiotics, probiotics, and postbiotics, because I think when you're referencing the metabolites, in some ways, you're referencing these short-chain fatty acids, which are also known as postbiotics. But there's so much jargon within the world of the microbiome that I think for, for people to understand the delineation between pre, pro, and postbiotics, uh, I think that would create some clarity for, for people, including myself. Yeah, sure. Look, um, th this is a, a new field of science. And so just like when astronomy was still new, we didn't have the full vocabulary to describe what we saw in the starry night, right? So to some extent, we are still trying to find categories that we can actually um, put um, a, a picture frame around, a definition around, right? So here, here, I'll try to boil it down to how most people think about it and give you a little bit of the caveats that we in the scientific world are, are also working on. So, um, so if you think about the um, gut bacteria um, as the microbiome, so this is the world, the neighborhood that's living in our gut of our microbiome. So the prebiotic is whatever is coming to feed the um, gut bacteria. And so we see these as um, uh, high fiber foods, uh, soluble fibers, uh, a lot of actual bioactives as well. So um, mm -hmm. some of the polyphenols actually have a positive, very big positive effect on our microbiome as well. So we don't want to blow that off. It's not all about fiber. The The actual bioactives are also quite important. Um, and the bacteria eating this food that, that we are actually giving to them by eating, they don't eat alone. They eat with, they have communal dining. So basically mm -hmm. our, our gut bacteria is like a, in our gut is like a giant cafeteria. And so when we feed them prebiotic foods, they're sitting with their friends and everybody is sharing the meal and deciding, you know, hey, you want to try some of this or here, have mine instead. And, and so just like a community working together, the, the magic that comes out of a group meal is different than actually sitting alone and dining alone. So when we talk about individual bacteria eating specific foods, what we need to realize is that actually it's not, even though we research it that way, it, you know, people try to find this food will feed that bacteria. That's a reductionist thinking really is that, you know, we're eating a meal of complex foods and there's a lot of prebiotics, a lot of fiber, a lot of uh, bioactives in the food that we eat. We absorb it, then we bring it down to the cafeteria and the gut microbiome kind of digests it. Now, this communal eating, 
the group of bacteria. They actually are the microbiome. And so sometimes we add bacteria to what we eat as well. And amazingly, the, what we're feeding the bacteria, which includes bacteria like cheese, for example, you can actually, if you take cheese, which actually has some healthy bacteria in it, some kinds of cheese, and you eat it, they'll tumble down through your gut and they will actually start, they'll just get off and they'll pull up a chair and sit in the cafeteria. Okay. Uh, and they'll, they'll start having a meal too. And so I think this analogy that I'm trying to give to make everybody understand how um, on one hand complex it is, but on the other hand, it, we can understand it pretty easily. Um, prebiotics, pro, probiotics are actually contributing bacteria. By the way, I used to scratch my head and say, well, how can bacteria survive stomach acid? How can right. bacteria make that long journey of 40 feet, like it's, it's impossible. That's what we were taught in medical school, you know, back in the stone age. Now we realize it's very possible. These bacteria are actually able to get right through the stomach. They survive digestion, the, the right ones di survives digestion, and they can make their way all the way down to the end. And you can even recover some if you take the stool and, and do a bacterial test, which by the way, is how we test our microbiome. You can eat something and you can measure it at the very end that doesn't normally appear in the gut. So we know this is true. So yeah. prebiotics, probiotics, you're eating the bacteria and it can be in food, it could be actually in a supplement, probiotic supplement. And postbiotics is an interesting concept. I think it's much less well-defined. Postbiotics could be the metabolites created by the bacteria. So, you know, in the cafeteria, um, they're, they're talking a few of these, uh, I'm going to use kind of like a, 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 an analogy, an entrepreneurial analogy. Um, a bunch of smart people get together over a meal and they've got a napkin and so and a, and a pencil and they're talking about all the ideas. They get a great idea. And so they scribble down on the back of a napkin, a business plan. Let's go create this thing. And then they, then they, then they like send off their, their napkin over to um, leave it for somebody to pick up to create a business out of it. Well, that's basically what these post part of the postbiotics are. Your bacteria creating something new from the food you spent, sent them during this dining period. And now that idea, in this case, it would actually be actual short chain fatty acids as one example. There's many more um, postbiotic, like what the bacteria produces that get into the bloodstream. You got short chain fatty acids. We think about three of them, propionic acid, butyrate, um, uh, uh, and uh, acetyl. Um, uh, uh, so these are, these are three different types of well-known postbiotics. And these are the ones that get into our bloodstream and they do all those magical things that we talked about, these incredible organ, uh, they, they, they influence our, our hormones, they organize our body functions. And, and, uh, uh, and I want to tell you one additional thing, which is that how, uh, how sensitive our, our gut bacteria are, because the, analogy, the example I just gave you is all based on eating good things that the bacteria would love to have. When we actually put in, when we eat substances that are not good for us, our body doesn't like it. Uh, we used to think about like the harm for the body, like an artificial dye, a, a food coloring, preservative that we, that's harmful, a toxic chemical. Well, guess what? Now we're feeding our, this, the bacteria, they're getting what we're absorbing is getting delivered to the cafeteria with our bacteria. Now the bacteria are descending and eating them. And guess what? It can poison all of the bacteria. When those bacteria die, the postbiotics aren't being made. Or sometimes 
some of the postbiotics that are made when we feed them something bad are harmful postbiotics as well. So postbiotics aren't always good. Hydrogen sulfide, which by right. the way, makes for a powerfully smelly fart, uh, okay, um, actually is an example of a bacteria product, a postbiotic that's not that good for you. So something you ate disagreed with the bacteria that then generated lots of hydrogen sulfide, which is the same smell as a rotten egg, right? And so, right. and that can be harmful. That can be reflecting harm. So prebiotic, po uh, uh, prebiotic, probiotic, postbiotic. And then there's a no whole other concept, which is um, the um, environment in which the bacteria grow. Many helpful bacteria, Jeff, um, grow in the mucus, the natural healthy mucus in our gut. Our gut is not a dry tube, like a tube, like a cardboard tube of a paper towel. Mm -mm. It is a flexible tube that is well lubricated with mucus. So whatever is in there can actually slip slide down where it needs to go. The bacteria have special ways of hanging on. So, you know, they're, they're seat belted to where they need to be. Um, that mucus uh, the, uh, can really help certain healthy bacteria grow. So some of the foods mm -hmm. we eat um, actually help the gut secrete more of that healthy mucus, which then allows the gut to grow more. And so there are also foods that are not just feed the bacteria like a prebiotic, but also create a more fertile environment so that more healthy bacteria can thrive. It's like putting fertilizer into your garden so your flowers are more beautiful. Yeah, and associated there in the gut right there is a is the majority of the immune system, right? And so um, a lot of these uh, short-chain fatty acids or, or postbiotics are regulating um, immune response. So maybe you could talk mm -hmm. about the... Uh, uh, maybe you would categorize that as the next town over <laughs> or a, a neighbor, uh, of yeah. how the, um, um, of how the bacteria is regulating immune response. Cause obviously that's a, on the top of everyone's mind right now. So this is very exciting and very important. Uh, where does immune system live in the body? It's so important for our survival. Where does it actually live? When I, again, you know, as doctors, we were long taught that they live in our lymph nodes, they live in our spleen, a little bit in our bone marrow. Um, right. But that's not the whole answer. The, the fuller answer that we now realize, 70% of our immune system is actually lives in our gut. And where do they live? They live within the wall of our gut. So think about, again, your gut like a, like a um, like a tube, and the within the wall of the tube, if you cut the a garden hose, there's a the the wall of the garden hose is pretty thick. The immune system lives within the wall of the gut. It's like a like the jelly in a jelly roll, okay. Mm. And the bacteria is in the middle of the tube, and and there's not a lot of separation. It's, they live very close to the immune system. I give the analogy. It's like college roommates in a dorm with thin walls, right? So you know. Um, uh, people are shouting to each other, telling what they want to order for pizza that night um, by <laughs> shouting right through the wall. And that's what our bacteria is able to do. Our bacteria can talk to our immune system and, and give them instructions. Um, and, and that's really what's important because when we do well by our gut bacteria, they give the right instructions to our immune system. When we actually harm our gut bacteria, 
and maybe it'd be important to kind of touch a, bit, a little bit on what are the things that harm gut bacteria. When we harm them, they are not actually giving the right instructions to our immune system. They're either not giving enough instruction or they're giving the wrong instructions. And if there's any health defense systems in our body um, that we don't want to actually have wrong instructions from, it's our immunity. I mean, I've read about how uh, the microbiome can regulate um, like uh, Tregs, like T cell regulator um, cells that can keep the immune system from over responding and running amok. Uh, and when we don't have Treg cells that, uh, operating properly, that can lead to autoimmune diseases, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I think this is a good opportunity to, because what you described before was a very amicable, affable community family style dinner <laughs> that's happening yeah, in the gut. Right. Um, when, uh, you know, when the, when your aunt gets a little bit too drunk and, uh, the, the topic turns to politics, <laughs> things can go off and, right. um, and you can, and we can delve into what is dysbiosis and then by extension, uh, how certain bacteria and toxins can um, contribute to intestinal permeability, which leads to, to low-grade chronic inflammation. So maybe you could pull on that thread for a minute. Yeah. Okay. So um, we painted this picture of how important bacteria in our body and how abundant they are and why they, and they talk to our immune system and they also create these postbiotic um, short-chain fatty acids that actually can influence our brain to our you know, metabolism and everything else. That's a, that's a rosy picture of the body at its best. And our gut bacteria and our immune system are just two parts of our five-pronged health defense systems, which include our circulation, our stem cells, um, uh, and our, our, our DNA's ability to protect itself. So what happens when the um, cafeteria becomes rowdy? or unruly, or when there's a gang of ruffians, you know, when, when the gangbangers enter the cafeteria, I mean, pretty much all hell breaks loose at various levels. So, you know, the, 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 the relatives striking a heated political debate makes everybody a little uncomfortable at the table, right? So you went from a happy meal to kind of like, oh man, can't believe we're talking about this. That's mild um, discomfort. Right. So think about mild discomfort in your gut. Something's not agreeing with that community in you. It can be pretty mild in passing. You can actually have much more severe disagreements where, you know, now somebody at the table picks up some food and they start a food fight. They start throwing things. All right. Now, if it's a more severe kind of problem and now you're not talking about it's not civil anymore. Now it's actually, you know, like like those are fighting words. And so now it's becoming unruly. It's and and the homeostasis or healthy existence of the gut bacteria that's important for health can be disturbed. And that disturbance is called dysbiosis, getting away from that balanced biological harmony. It's not you know, a healthy cafeteria anymore where everybody's eating and having co polite conversation. It might not even be a political argument. It may not even be a food fight. It could be an all out brawl. Okay. And the more you brawl, the more toxic the environment becomes truly from the bacteria perspective. And some bacteria actually wind up, you know, um, generating these toxins. It's kind of like that cafeteria, like, Hey, you know what? I had no idea someone's going to pull a gun. 
All right. Uh, and now all of a sudden you've got a few players that are actually acting up in a dysbiotic environment that are really causing uh, a very dangerous situation. Some of those toxins, by the way, uh, literally cause our gut, which is a uh, watertight tube. Think about that. Uh, it, a, a watertight tube because you were, we're drinking water. It's flowing all the way through our body. We cannot have a leaky gut. Otherwise, we're going to have all kinds of problems. We don't want bacteria to be leaking into our bellies. That would be a problem. And yet that's what happens. You know, this food fight, this dysbiosis, these bad actors, somebody pulls a weapon. And now the gut, the wall of the gut is disturbed, inflamed. And now when it's inflamed, it's leaking. When it's leaking, man, now you've got the stuff that's the food fight is actually leaking out into the belly, into in, into the internal cavity of your belly. And literally, when I say leaking, these food particles, which are fine, they might have tasted great, when they leak out into our body cavity where they don't belong, causes intense pain, intense inflammation. Our body responds violently sometimes. And this is what we're, by the way, seeing in irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, cancer of the gut can also cause this. Um, and mm. by the way, now think about the, those um, the, those uh, critical immune cells that were in that gut lining. They're getting leaked yeah. through as well. They're also being damaged. Now your immune system is like, should we attack these? Should we calm them down? We don't even know what to do anymore because it's so crazy. A fraternity party gone wild. Okay. And, <laughs> and this is what gastroenterologists are dealing with gut doctors, when patients are saying, man, for the last decade, I haven't been able to eat a meal without feeling crummy. That's This is what we're realizing is behind all of this, our gut bacteria not being treated well. And it's so easy, by the way, to make our gut bacteria unhappy. We eat, I mean, it's so, it's when we eat healthy foods, forget about what you watch in television or read about on the internet. It is actually true. Mostly plant-based foods, whole plant-based foods, nuts and legumes, healthy fats, um, you know, um, moderate amounts of, of red wine yeah. and other, you know, healthier versions of alcoholic beverages, coffee and teas. They actually all help feed the microbiome. They provide some modicum or a lot of, of prebiotic. When you start adding some of those chemical ingredients that you can't pronounce on the side of a box of an ultra-processed food or artificial sweeteners or um, a synthetic food coloring uh, 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 or overabundance of added sugar, I can tell you that the gut bacteria does not like that. And we quickly start creating chaos in our gut. Now, if we don't overwhelm our gut, our gut bacteria is pretty, they're pretty resilient. So it can tolerate a little bit of disturbance and it'll try to right size itself. You know, it's just like a community, it, you know, and it can bounce back relatively quickly when properly nourished and maintained, which is the good news. I think is that, that, right? that is exactly correct. And so people who act, and even people who have actually had years of dysbiosis, what people need to understand is that we're beginning to realize your, our gut, our body has the ability to bounce itself back. And one of the things that I think is um, uh, an exciting breakthrough area of medicine is we're realizing throwing pharmaceuticals at the problem uh, may not be the right solution. We should be rethinking how we deal with the gut instead of masking symptoms, maybe trying to restore the integrity of that 
uh, gut community to begin with. Yeah, I, I call it, we seem to be focused on watering the leaves and not the roots um, where we're always um, addressing the the symptoms and not the root cause, of course. And, you know, and it, it's obviously processed foods and sugar, um, but there are also other inputs that can degrade the eubiosis uh, of the gut. I mean, I think about stress right now. Um, you know, people watching, you know, 24-hour news cycle, which is geared around human negativity bias to uh, trigger certain kinds of rage and anger um, that keeps us in this constant sort of amygdala hijack, which, of course, has a hormonal component to it, which your your body is soaked in, in cortisol and epinephrine, which was you know, had utility on the Serengeti, but not um, necessarily in chronic form, psychological form uh, in the modern age. And of course, cortisol can also have uh, an impact on the gut. And then, you know, the overabundance of NSAIDs in our, in our, uh, um, I wouldn't even call it diet, but in terms of, you know, treating um, uh, uh, inflammation with NSAIDs and, and PPI. So there's, the gut, when we're not paying attention, it can be under assault from multiple flanks. And, um, and when we develop conditions like intestinal permeability and you have these lipopolysaccharides and other toxins seeping out into the bloodstream, the immune system sends out a response to trigger inflammation. And now, Oftentimes, people think of inflammation as a good thing, and perhaps this is a moment where you could address the difference between acute inflammation with an injury that requires some degree of angiogenesis and healing versus chronic inflammation, which seems to have quite detrimental impacts. Yeah, so... Um this is this is something that I really have spent uh, my career uh, researching and, and trying to tease apart. So inflammation is a component of our immune response, our immune system. And it was designed in order to be able to protect us from things like injury, where if we cut ourselves or we scrape our knee or we have a much or we, or we um, have surgery uh, or have a big traumatic wound, the bacteria that can in enter from the outside world, our body is kind of anticipating that. So when we actually have this break in the skin, one of the almost immediate, like I'm talking about within a minute or two responses and a, a knee jerk reflex that our immune system has is to send out inflammation, inflammatory cells right to the site of the injury to essentially be ready to block and tackle any harmful invaders that might come from the outside. It could be an insect, it could be a bacteria, it could be a virus, it could be a fungus, it could be whatever it is, Are that those inflammatory cells know what to do. It's kind of like um, uh, sending out the um, uh, infantry to the front lines. So you basically, they're all trained what to do. They, they all do the same thing. They're out there blocking and tackling. Uh, but in a wound, what actually happens is that that inflammation, which might be around for a day or two, by the way, how do you know you've got inflammation after you get an injury? 
well, you get that, let's say you scrape yourself, you get a little bit of swelling right along the injured area, little pink, puffy, pinkish redness. That's inflammation. Happens within a few minutes. And usually by the next day or so, it goes away because our body knows after it's cleaned up the the, air, the breach, time for the, the, the infantryman to go away. We got to heal things up, heal it up with all the angiogenesis and blood vessels growing and repair and regenerate that tissue. So inflammation is a really important part of staying alive, um, uh, but it should be there for a little bit and then go away. And the body knows how to turn it up and turn it down. It's kind of like a volume switch, turn it up. And then when, when you've heard what you need to hear, turn it back down. You know, really literally inflammation is a day or two and that's about it. Now, that's what it's supposed to do. When you actually have chronic inflammation, leaking gut, dysbiotic, um, uh, gut back to microbiome, uh, uh, chronic stress that leading to all this inflammation as you so um, beautifully described. Now you've got inflammation that is not, not only is it not directed and targeted to an area of injury, it's everywhere. Now your, your whole body's inflamed. Okay. And that's not a good thing when your whole body's inflamed and there's no specific injury. It's just looking like looking everywhere for a problem and it doesn't back down. Now those inflammatory cells, which are really good at releasing toxins, cleaning things up, clean, you know, moving out uh, the, the bad cells. Now they're just doing their job, kind of releasing digestive enzymes and you know, natural killer things everywhere and gobbling up uh, debris everywhere in your body, that tends to degrade our health. It degrades our healthy function. And there's no way to turn it off. And in fact, what we want is our body to be able to turn it down. Our gut, a healthy gut microbiome was one way of turning down inflammation. Um, and instead, what med med medical doctors have been doing for decades now is just prescribing steroids. Let's just shut that baby down artificially. Right. All right. Well, now you've actually tamped down your whole immune system and potentially altered your microbiome as well. Uh, sometimes we have to do it, but you know, like that's not that we shouldn't be reaching for that right away. Um, or we're actually using NSAIDs uh, to calm inflammation. Well, that's fine, but it doesn't treat the root root cause. So you're just kind of um, you're, you're just um, uh, you're just actually taking a squirt gun to a forest fire. <laughs> You know, we're, yeah. we're, we're definitely not putting that baby out. So, yeah. So these are some of the harms of chronic inflammation. Yeah. And it seems that that low grade or even middle grade chronic inflammation seems to be the, uh, the underwriting a lot of these big killer chronic diseases that we alluded to when we started our conversation where now what we're looking at is, you know, epidemics of, of heart disease and cancer and type 2 diabetes and Alzheimer's. Um, and, you know, not to poke the bear of COVID too much, but it's always, you know, the elephant in the room. And, you know, when you look at the comorbidities that are associated with, the, with folks that contract aggressive COVID, that results in either hospitalization or, in some cases, fatality. Those comorbidities are the one are the same ones that are underscored or supported by this uh, chronic inflammation. So, you know, when you look at society and the prevalence of metabolic syndrome, 
of high blood pressure, high glucose levels, of high deposits of adipose tissue, et cetera, you can trace that right back to lifestyle inputs, whether that's environmental or diet or nutritional, um, whether it's stress or, you know, overprescription of, anti- of broad spectrum antibiotics. So, I'm wondering if you could tease one thing out for me because I'm just a lowly podcast host with not a lot of letters after his name. Um, but one of the ways that the immune system triggers inflammation are through these signals called cytokines. And cytokines have become sort of popular among us moonlighting microbiologists <laughs> because there have been... Um, uh, cytokine storms have um, been uh, the cause of some of the COVID deaths. And to me, what it seems like is that we're living in this constant state of agitation where our immune system is agitated and might overreact to the presence of a virus and create a cytokine storm such that that would triggers cell death in the tissues of the lungs that then fill with with fluid and um and people ended up dying of hypoxia or pneumonia um and can't get oxygen to to the heart etc do you see a connection there between um inflammation and and those who seem to be most uh deleteriously impacted by covid Right. Well, so I actually am a COVID researcher because I was one of the people in very early in the pandemic to um, help to gather tissue from people who died of COVID and do the analysis to understand what's going on. And what I would tell mm-hmm. you as a as a actual COVID researcher is that there's still a lot we don't understand about the disease because it clearly does more than cause the um, garden variety infection, even a serious garden variety infection. So. Um, we're still trying to figure this out. What I will say, though, is that remember we talked about you know the the breach of the defenses and the immune body's immune response. Um, uh, that can also happen if you breathe in a virus and the virus sets up in your lung and starts to infect your cells. Look, that's a breach of the defenses. Our natural knee jerk in, uh, in, uh, response is to really send out inflammatory cells, infl- a little bit of low grade inflammation to clean that out. If the infection is very aggressive, you know, um, you're going to send more inflammatory um, cells out there. And once you have the buildup of the infantry out there and they're firing ammunition blindly, um, uh, you know, you, you cause you can cause quite a bit of damage. So small inflammation getting to bigger inflammation is kind of what we're seeing in some cases of severe COVID. And it's not just COVID. I mean, I think that we are seeing this even in severe influenza or, mm. you know, COPD or some of these other lung diseases that we actually are, are much more common. Smokers lungs probably have something similar. The, the, one of the problems that we we're actually seeing um, with, the, um, with COVID that, that's become kind of a buzzword is cytokines. So these immune, these inflammatory cells, immune cells are setting up and they, what, what would be normally a relatively minor mission to help clean up the lung winds up becoming a, um, a uh, uh, let's call it a battlefield. Um, and in fact, uh, it might even be better called a crossfire where, mm. you know, there's so much ammunition being sent out by our immune system. 
in the form of these cytokines, which then attract more, call in more ammunition. We need backup support. Air call, we need air support. And basically, this is what's actually happening until it's just this mess of a battle from our immune system, our inflammatory system. Definitely chronic inflammation starts in the lung, but it seems like it can go in other parts of the body um, uh, as well. And those cytokines, which then reach um, uh, astronomical levels, uh, really become part of the problem. So this is really kind of your body's defenses gone haywire. Uh, we see this something like this in autoimmune diseases as well. And in fact, we think that the long COVID that some people suffer from months after having and recover, have acute COVID and recovered from an initial bout of COVID may also be due to this sort of just this um, continued um, uh, battle that's actually going on with these cytokines being flown around. So you get this autoimmune kind of response. So what do you do? I mean, do you throw a steroid at it to shut it down? Do you actually use diet and lifestyle? What's the role of the microbiome? Can we reset that? Um, these are some of the big outstanding questions that are out there. I'm one of the people looking at, at, at ways to uh, improve uh, the body's response after any kind of infection. And hopefully we're going to learn something useful from this episode that mankind has gone through over the last couple of years. And we might be able to actually use it for in, uh, inflammatory bowel disease or um, irritable bowel syndrome or or maybe even cancer or or, or, or um uh, other lung diseases as well. So I'm, I'm hopeful that the, that the fringe benefits or the dividends of the research we're doing now are going to pay off in other diseases. Yeah. I mean, certainly there does seem to be an interesting future for messenger RNA vaccines for, you know, other kinds of applicability for them. Um, and, uh, and yes, obviously the, the, um, relationship between inflammation and viral disease, et cetera. I think, I mean, this is just a, hopefully an opportunity, as you say, some of the, the, the silver lining um, there that we can uh, apply in the future towards sane public health. Um, I want to just take a moment, if you have time, to address cancer, just because this is an area of work where you've done, uh, or an area um, of study where you've done a lot of work. And some of the new emerging uh, immunotherapies around cancer and its relationship to um, some of these immunotherapies relationship to um, the microbiome, because I think it's, it's fascinating, and, and just how we can eat to beat cancer, uh, both in conjunction with um, con conventional therapies, but also in relation to, to some of these new, amazing new uh, immunotherapies. Right. Well, you know, um, all of us know somebody who has been touched by cancer, maybe even a close family member, and and all of us associate cancer with being this fearful, possibly terminal disease, where the treatment is actually perhaps even more scary with chemotherapy. So that's been imprinted on us. Um, but the work that I've done in cancer research and the understanding of cancer today is changing that terrain and that landscape and changing the culture of thinking about cancer as well. First of all, let me say to your listeners and viewers that we are all forming microscopic cancers. We all have cancer in our body. Right here, right now, we've been forming cancers in our body since we were kids. <clears throat> Think of cancer like a pimple. 
um, you know, they form all the time. Uh, sometimes you see them in the mirror. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you go through a phase in your life where you see more of them and then they don't form anymore. Sometimes a pimple forms in your butt cheek and you won't even know about it. Okay. And basically the, the, the idea is that our body is composed of 40 trillion cells. They are dividing to maintain themselves. And when they make a mistake in dividing, that's a mutation. You, it's a setup. One or two little mistakes is a setup for a mutant cell that when it replicates itself, divides itself, copy pastes itself, can be a microscopic cancer. And these little mistakes are really the root cause of why cancers actually begin. If you smoke cigarettes, you're going to make your lung create more mistakes. If you, um, you know, uh, you know, if you lay out in the sun and have, if if you go to a tanning uh, booth, you're going to actually create more mistakes in your skin. And that's why you get melanoma. So cancer is not that much of a mystery. It's mistakes that are being made. Now, what about somebody who's living the good life and trying to be as healthy as possible still makes mistakes. Your body still makes mistakes because there's 40 trillion cells dividing all the time. They're going to make some mistakes. It's just, it's, it's like, even if you're the best typist and you're typing your term paper, you're still going to make a couple of uh, errors. Good news is that your body has spell check and actually can fix those mistakes um, without you knowing it. So how many mistakes does a normal body make every single day? 10,000 mistakes occur in our body every single day. That's the estimate based on how many cells we actually have. Now, so there's 10,000 shots on goal for a microscopic cancer to set up every day. So why don't we get more cancer more often? That's the interesting question. It's partly Mm -hmm. because our body actually has the ability to prevent cancers from growing up. So a microscopic can't grow, cancer cannot grow larger than the tip of a ballpoint pen. Let me just show you one. Here's a, well, this isn't a ballpoint pen, but here's the tip of a pen. That's as big as a cancer can actually grow without a blood supply. Just doesn't have enough oxygen or nutrients. Once blood vessels get there, if a cancer can hijack your blood vessel, uh, the blood supply, it can grow 16,000 times. That's the size of a basketball in just two weeks. So our body's ability to protect itself, defend itself against cancer involves our ability to control angiogenesis so we're not able to so the cancers can't grow blood vessels healthy cells can grow blood vessels cancers can't so that's one defense um another and so basically these little microscopic um uh, cancers are sitting around in your body okay like this and then what happens is our immune system they can't grow our immune system healthy immune system communicated by a healthy microbiome which responds to what we eat and how we're stressed and other environmental factors we've talked about, that immune system will wing by, kind of just doing, it's like a a beat cop on patrol, finds these little guys sitting around and takes them out. Basically says, hey, that microscopic cancer, not a good guy. Let's remove them. So our immune system knows how to take care of cancer. That's what it's hardwired to do. That's why we don't get cancer more often. Now, Immunotherapy, and when you actually have a cancer that's rip-roaring, diagnosed, breast cancer and a mammogram or colon cancer and colonoscopy, prostate cancer with a high PSA, brain tumor by MRI of your brain. I'm a doctor. I see this all the time, and I, I, I'm involved with cancer patients. Those, that's because that cancer, that tumor, has been able to evade, grow blood vessels to it, figure out how to hide from your immune system explode in its growth. Um, and by the way, if, it, if your mel- microbiome isn't healthy, your immune system has a trouble finding those um, uh, cancers, most microscopic tumors well. If you're eating foods that trigger blood vessels to grow harmfully, you can also feed your cancer. So, so what do you want to do? You want to actually 
um, eat foods to prevent blood vessels from feeding um, your cancer. And if you need the treatment, there are biotech treatments that I help to develop that do that. If your um, immune system is down, uh, you need to fix your microbiome. You know, like that's the first thing I always talk about. But then you actually sometimes need to give some help to your immune system. Immunothera enter immunotherapy. These are a new approach to treating cancer that doesn't generally kill the cancer itself. What it does is it powers up your own immune system or even uncloaks the cancer so that your immune system right. can find the cancer and wipe it out. That has completely transformed our ability to fight cancer because um, most immunotherapies do not have the side effects of chemotherapy. You're not trying to poison the body. All you're trying to do is to empower your immune system to do what it normally does. Yeah, it's amazing. And of course, chemotherapies degrade the immune system. Um, and, uh, and then it can, that can lead to all sorts of other cascading effects. And um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's fascinating that we have these B and T cells that are on patrol, as you say, just kind of roaming the body. And when we have an upregulated immune system and, you know, everything's functioning in eubiosis, those B and T cells have a better opportunity at, at fighting cancer. And we just rely on our own immune system, uh, you know, to beat back, you know, what is otherwise just a very scary concept for people. Um, but also, I think, you know, one of the fascinating things that I read in your book was that these cancer cells are quite insidious and sneaky, and they have the ability to sort of cloak themselves uh, to not appear as detrimental as they are. And that certain immunotherapies, like with uh, checkpoint inhibitors, in combination with, um, I think it was acromantia, which was a particular kind of um, bacteria. beneficial bacteria, that when you when you can upregulate both of those things, um, you know, as far as I understand, the cancer sort of uh, connects to the to the checkpoint on a T cell and sort of disarms it, and then this checkpoint inhibitor kind of reinvigorates the the T cell in order to to um, to do its job. And uh, maybe you could talk a, just a tiny bit about th that therapy because I found it so fascinating. Okay. So first of all, immunotherapy, the research lead that led up to immunotherapy was awarded a Nobel Prize in 2018. So a professor um, uh, out of Texas uh, is one of the professors, another Japanese professor as well, um, won the Nobel Prize for the uh, monumental discoveries that led to cancer immunotherapy. I never, by the way, Jeff, thought in my career I would actually see a time in my lifetime where prescribing a medicine could, without harming the patient, wipe out even metastatic cancer. And in fact, I, I used it on my own mother and saved her life. Um, she had metastatic recurrent endometrial cancer, and we were able to get um, an immunotherapy, wipe everything out. Three treatments over nine weeks, she had no more cancer. And that, that's not even a remission. It's basically her body re reverting itself to its baseline, essentially. Right. Uh, it's a restoration yeah. of health as opposed to waiting for the other shoe to drop, which is the chemo kind of concept. Like we got you in remission and, you know, thank goodness if we can keep you there for five years, you know, um, you'll probably be okay. We, we, right. we now realize that if you give the body a chance to do what it wants to do, you can achieve remarkable things. So um, but here's a problem with immunotherapies as remarkable as they are. You know, honestly, for many immunotherapies, they only work in about 20% of people. 
man, that's terrible. Like 20% of people who, who wins the lottery ticket there. Right. And if you're somebody with cancer, you want to be somewhere in that 20%. And so this, this was a big mystery for a long time. Now we're beginning to tease it apart. And guess what? It has to do with the microbiome. So my yeah. colleague, um, Laurence Zitvogel, who's an immuno-oncologist, one of the world's top experts in this area in Paris, um, uh, did a study that was published in the journal Science. She looked at 200 people with cancer, various types of cancers, being, tre being treated with immunotherapy, these so-called checkpoint inhibitors. And she found that about 20% would respond and the other ones weren't doing that great. They did not actually respond the way that we wanted. And so she compared every single parameter she could actually find between the responders and the non-responders. Because obviously, the, the, the finding out what would make somebody a responder is a holy grail. Like everybody would want to be to get that. You want to bottle that. And what she found was it didn't matter with genetics. It didn't matter with body size or obesity. It didn't matter with comorbidities. The only thing that mattered was the gut microbiome. And it was only one bacteria that made the difference. People who had Acromancia mucinophila, mucin because it loves to grow in the mucus, this Acromancia right. being a guardian, a primary communicator to the immune system is key to patients responding to checkpoint inhibitors and immunotherapy. So um, she found that if they had that, they would respond. If they didn't have that, they wouldn't be a good responder. Now, how do you kill acromancia? So easy. If you got a Z-pack, if I gave you a Z-pack for bronchitis, which you know many patients yeah. are on antibiotics or various things, wipes out your acromancia. Uh-oh, now you're not going to respond. So one of the things that you know I started to do is to figure out how do, like I, Dr. Zitvogel and I actually were talking about this, like how do you actually bring back your acromancia? Because there's no probiotic for acromancia right now. You can't eat it, all right? So the only way you can grow acromancia is to have your gut secrete that mucus, that healthy mucus, putting fertilizer, loam, rich topsoil back into the garden, the, the mucus growing. Mm. So how do you do that? Well, turns out that dietary factors these bioactives called elagitannins, which are found in pomegranate, which are found in conquered grape, which are found in cranberries, actually prompt the gut to secrete the mucus. And you can grow lots of acromancia. Takes a couple of weeks. But we certainly, for my mother, we certainly made sure that you know we gave her acromancia. And now patients that I know are testing their microbiome before immunotherapy to see if they have any acromancia. Um, sometimes they can't mm. even remember if they took an antibiotic. Um, and you can grow it with food, with diet. That's the only way you can actually get your acromancia to grow. So that's an example of, I mean, I had a patient recently who um, uh, had a blood cancer, was going to get an immunotherapy, um, but she has a bunch of small kids. They had a infection going through the house. It was like a you know, a virus, a bronchitis, um, a viral bronchitis, they all wind up getting antibiotics, you know, just the regular primary care doctor kind of thing. Um, you shouldn't yeah. give antibiotics for viral infections, by the way. Um, and, <laughs> uh, uh, but they got them and, and she got it too. Uh, and guess what wound up happening? Um, we just, we, before she was getting on the immunotherapy, I basically asked, can we please check your acromancia? So we got a stool sample, sent it off for microbiome analysis and she had no acromancia, none. Mm. Not surprising because of the antibiotics. So uh, we basically said, please, let's wait for the immunotherapy until we can build back her 
acromantia. So I got her on pomegranate juice, eight fluid ounces a day. Uh, we had her on it for three weeks. That sounds like a long time to with, withhold a cancer treatment. But I tell you, then we rechecked her stool and she had six times above the population average of acromantia. So we grew it right back. She had a flourishing garden, a French garden um, uh, of acromantia, got on immunotherapy, and she became a swift, rapid, complete responder. Her, her hematologist had never seen somebody respond so well. I'm just giving you a case study, but I'm just telling you, this is based on real emerging yeah. science. Why we need to stay on our toes and not assume that we know everything. The science is changing, and it's getting more exciting by the day. Yeah, I mean, if anyone needs any more information or evidence that food is medicine, well, there you go. <laughs> um, you know, you just heard it. And, you know, also a lot of these therapies can, can be combined. I mean, you can reduce stage four cancer to a stage two where it could be more operable, for example. So it's not um, that you might just eat your way into complete and utter health, though that that is possible. But it, it does seem like... Um, you know, having some versatility and flexibility in some of these treatments um, can really be helpful. Yeah, no, no. I, I want to really, really underscore this for your listeners. So listen, I, I spent 25 years involved with biotechnology. I'm still involved with it now. I helped to develop 41 FDA-approved drugs and, and devices for cancer, complications, diabetes, and vision loss. So I'm all about finding the new, better ways to treat a horrible disease, but it's the right person, the right medicine for the right person at the right time. Okay. Um, however, how I got involved with food as medicine is I realized that food was a missing tool in the toolbox, you know, and that while medicine can be delivered in the hospital or in the infusion clinic or in the primary care setting in a doctor's office, in fact, health care is what is being done between visits to the hospital or between visits to the doctor's office. And, and food is something that we didn't have the right amount of information on. So since I helped to develop drugs, I actually started to study food in the same systems that we develop medicines on and was able, in fact, to be able to study food and drugs side by side to really, really take a look at food as medicine. And when I say that you know, food as medicine is so useful for improving your microbiome, for improving your blood, your circulation, for, you know, helping to combat cancer. It is by no means a substitute for standard, best practice, state-of-the-art medical treatment. However, so it's not food versus medicine. What I'm saying is that food is something that every individual is empowered to do for themselves every day before they're sick when they're sick, after they've recovered from sickness, whereas doctors and health systems have powerful ways, but limited ways to being able to influence the body itself, whereas food is much more powerful. And if you think about it sort of holistically, it's not food versus medicine. I know there's a temptation to say, my kale is better than my chemo. That's not right. the point. The point is, what about food and medicine? Uh, uh, there was an amazing study done looking at young, healthy kids who are getting a flu vaccine, okay, um, just normal, healthy kids in college getting a flu vaccine. And they found that if you get a flu vaccine, um, and, and by the way, flu vaccines are only about 40% effective in general. Uh, your immune spot, the response doesn't always kick up. Sometimes it's against the wrong uh, flu. But they actually um, gave half of the kids in this trial a, uh, a shake 
made with broccoli sprouts. Broccoli sprouts mm. contain a natural bioactive called uh, isothiocyanate sulforaphanes. These sulforaphanes activate your immune system with the health defense systems. And it, they found that actually when they looked at people who got the flu uh, vaccine plus uh, a, a broccoli sprout shake, that it improved, when you look in their blood, it improved their immune response for their natural killer cells by 22 times. There's no medicine. There's no drug yeah. company that could actually ramp up your flu protection like that. So, and when they actually did the diaries of the people, they figured out they found those people who also had broccoli sprout shakes just had less symptoms, missed less school, missed less class. So again, this is really a more it's taking science and putting it wherever it needs to be. And one of the areas that I'm really committed to is actually figuring how to apply it to food because food feeds our human cells and our microbiome as well. Yeah. Now, as we make efforts to reform kind of the sick care system to a healthcare system, do you see a future in which alongside writing scripts for an antibiotic um, that you could write a script for broccoli sprouts? Well, you know, it's interesting. Right now, there is a uh, movement. Uh, I'm part of several federal uh, initiatives to um, help reform our food system and connect it to our health system. Uh, and uh, prescription foods are actually a real idea. And, and you know who's driving it? Our insurance companies because they're the ones who actually hemorrhage cash for right. chronic illnesses that aren't made better. And so there is actually an incentive now being um, provided by some insurance companies for people to actually, for doctors to write prescriptions for patients to eat and receive these prescriptions or write healthier foods. Now, you know, how this actually gets handled at a at scale across the country remains right. to be decided. But, you know, man, um, I do think that there is a very real future where um, the healthcare system leans directly into what we get in the grocery store and the farmer's market. And the education, by the way, this is something I'm really, really committed to. Any of the listeners who actually believe in this, like, please come to my website and send me a note and let me know that you're interested in this. Um, and anybody who's a change maker, I, wanna, I, I would love to know how we can team up. I think what's absolutely critical is that we um, we uh, update, uh, revise uh, the medical education system so that medical students, uh, as they're training, get the same knowledge that we spent the last hour and a half talking about. They need to know it. How come doctors don't know it? So I'd love to be able to be one of the um, uh, forces that actually helps to transform and update our medical education system. Yeah. How, how much nutrition education did you get when you were getting your MD? I, I can tell you, I, I went to a very good medical school and I had outstanding clinical training. I had one week of nutrition and, and most yeah. people laughed during the course because it was considered kind of like the, the course that you didn't really need to study for. And at the end of the day, the, it's the culture. At the end of the day, you're going to actually just write a consult for a nutritionist or a dietitian to come to deal with the patients anyway. It used to be like the the the, the subject that nobody really took seriously. I will tell you now, Jeff, that the generation of medical students that are in schools right now, 
first year, second year, third year, final, fourth year of medical school, they're the ones who are actually going to change things. They care about this for themselves. The practicing doctor in their 60s out there, been doing this for you know uh, decades, uh, you know, we can try to change your mind. But what we really need to do is get back to where the new blood is coming from and get these people to be armed so that they can actually help patients help themselves. That's what's going to make the biggest change in this country from a healthcare perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good for you. For, uh, and, and count me on the team for, for that kind of reform because, you know, certainly we need it. Um, so leave us today with, uh, with a couple of key foods or what are you cooking uh, around the house? What, um, you know, what do you um, recommend to people as we go into winter and you know, people, you know, spending more time inside and, and you know, making efforts to, to bolster their immune system? Great question. So um, I'll tell you the things that I think about for my own immune system um, based on the science that I know. Blueberries, which are easy and great for breakfast, ramp up the immune system. Uh, that's been shown by blood tests and young, healthy people and athletes. I and mean, it, it definitely works. And you don't need very much, even just like a, a cup a day uh, of blueberries, which, you know, if you cook down that cup, it's like almost nothing. Uh, if you just sat there and snacked on blueberries, mm. it'd be very easy. Dried blueberries, fresh blueberries are fine. Um, kiwi is another breakfast food that actually is really easy. It's packed with vitamin C, good for the immune system. Most people don't realize that the kiwi is a wonderful source of fiber to feed your microbiome. One kiwi, eating one kiwi will, will improve your microbiome in 24 hours. Like that, that's a, that's a payback that, you know, also tastes good. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I snack yeah. on nuts, tree nuts, walnuts, pecans, pistachios, um, uh, almonds. Uh, those also uh, feed the gut microbiome. I, I think about you know um, uh, I think about the microbiome a lot, which is why I was so excited to uh, come on board to talk about this with you. Um, nuts are not only a good source of protein; they have healthy fats and they are a great source of fiber. Mushrooms. I love the taste of mushrooms. Um, Mushrooms are a great source of soluble fiber, um, good for the microbiome. Beta D glucan is what it's called, um, and that's oh by the way, it's also important to know. You know, we're beginning to figure out what these things are that are good. Um, uh, studies have been shown um, that uh, eating mushrooms uh, with that contain beta D glucan actually improve your immune system, starting your saliva and even in your um, mucus in your nose. That's good defense. You need frontline defense. You need that gate to be pretty strong uh, as well. So those are just a handful of foods. And of course, oh, by the way, so I talked about broccoli sprouts. Well, the grown-up broccoli also can do the same thing. The reason I talk about broccoli sprouts is because this is the odd thing. These sulforaphanes, these healthy bioactives, yeah. broccoli sprouts, which are three to four day old sprouts, you can get them, you know, like in the sprout section of the grocery store, which has become more powerful. Amazingly, they have 100 times more sulforaphanes than the grown-up broccoli 100 times wow. more so you know you want to be if you want to have scalable effect with the smallest amount of volume some broccoli sprouts you can sprinkle on a salad you can put into a shake cook with it saute with it um you know um, what an amazing way to yeah. actually activate your and i you know what i what i really think that is helpful that i really want to leave your listeners to with is that everything we've talked about when i've mentioned a food uh, is something that comes from a cultural tradition where people make these foods taste awesome, great. 
So yeah. for me, I believe that food is one of the most intimate things in our lives. It tells us about our upbringing, our childhood. Everybody can smell something, remember the smell of their mom's cooking growing up. It tells us about our family. It tells us about our community. It tells us about our culture. Everybody comes from somewhere today. And a lot of these traditional food cultures, we're already using these healthy foods. We're just rediscovering the science behind them. And because they can be cooked in tasty ways, food has to taste great. It can't be too expensive. It's got to be relatively convenient. And you can take, uh, you know, I write about 200 foods in my book, Eat to Beat Disease. You can find tasty, delicious recipes for these anywhere. And that's what I always tell people, love your food. Got to love, it's got to be tasty. You got to love it. If you love your food and love your health at the same time, that's the one-two punch to actually live a long, healthy life. Yeah. I mean, you just look at the blue zones, these people where, where these places where people are regularly living to a hundred years plus, but thriving all of that way. And, and you compare their microbiomes and, and, and you see what diets that they have been, uh, enjoying for, for centuries. And you, you look at that cuisine and that cuisine is absolutely delicious in every way. Um, and so there's really not a lot of sacrifice that one needs to make. Uh, we're getting really into all sorts of fermented soys here and we do a ton of fermenting. Uh, we do our own sauerkraut here on our own kimchi. Um, and it's, it's, it's not only delicious, but it's so much fun <laughs> once you get into it, right. um, that it just becomes a, a really joyful or joyful and efflorescent part of your life uh, that's additive uh, and you're not really giving anything up. So there's a, there's a little switch that needs to go off about that. Totally. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Lee, so much for, uh, for this time and for all your work. And, uh, and I hope we can continue the conversation because there's always just so much to talk about with polyphenols and flavonoids and antioxidants. And, um, uh, and I know that um, my audience is just going to lap it up as I do too. So thank you so much. Well, it's a pleasure. And, you know, I want to leave something with, uh, for, for you guys. So one of the things that I've been doing is I've been, um, taking the latest research, um, talking about these health defense systems and the role of food and offering, you know, really free masterclasses. We've had 30 countries participate in, you know, these are free to come to listen about what's going on during, you know, the, the heart of the pandemic. I came up with this idea that the, the hospitals weren't, be able, weren't that helpful and the doctor's offices weren't that helpful, but we could all help ourselves. And so I've kept this up. Anybody who wants to find out more about my masterclasses, come to my website, drwilliamlee.com, drwilliamlee.com, or you can follow me on social at, at Dr. William Lee and um, find out, you know, sign up, find up my masterclass. It's a great way to actually just keep on filling in those question marks and those gaps that, you know, everybody naturally has. I've been trying to think through like, what are we actually uh, doing to, what, what have we discovered new that someone could actually learn about and put it into action in their lives right away? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought those up. Those have been such uh, an immense service to people. I know you did one recently with Dr. Uh, Bolsowitz, who is also a gastroenterologist um, and also very into the microbiome. And 
and it's just such a, an amazing service. And I think people are more interested in this information than ever. And the good news is, is that you're providing so much ammunition for people to take control over their own life, almost, you know, be their own functional medicine doctor on some level. Um, and it's, it's incredibly empowering. And, and as I said, also a lot of fun. So we'll be sure to leave um, all of those links for the masterclasses in the notes. And again, I just want to, I want to thank you so much for all your work. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's a real pleasure to be on. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. William Lee. You can sign up for Dr. Lee's informative newsletter or get information on his free online sessions at drwilliamlee.com. And feel free to reach out to me anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. And if so inclined, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible, including Jake Laub, Kamali Martin, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fritz, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you. <laughs>